Namaste to all of you. We are starting with the discourse. We are towards the end of our project of commenting teachings, spiritual teachings given by Krishna to Arjuna in the fundamental text of Indian spirituality called the Bhagavad Gita. We are commenting now the chapter number six and we are somewhere beyond the middle of this chapter. Last time we stopped at the shloka number 27 and actually I'm going to resume a little bit more on this strophe. As I said, this chapter is very important among others because Krishna is setting some standards. It's very easy to get spirituality confused. And as I said in one of my previous discourses, up till a certain point, it's not even possible to show exactly that the spiritual reality exists. I, in a previous discourse, I showed in an almost painful way that the spiritual subjective perception of people can beyond a certain point be even considered a mental affliction, a mental problem, because some people in their minds have a longing for something which is non-demonstrable, not clear, and the spiritual reality is perceived subjectively in words, and some people never acquire any paranormal abilities, and even the paranormal abilities are not a direct demonstration of the spiritual reality, and so on and so forth. And that is why it's like if we say, like Krishna says at some point before, that out of a thousand people, one is willing to do something concretely for their spiritual development. That makes spiritual practitioners 0.1% of the population. That makes spiritual practitioners a minority, a very, very small minority of the population, at least in a time like Kali Yuga. And many, for many spiritual people, therefore many people can say, as we say in the lecture on Ishvara Pranidhana, Maybe this is like a virus. It's like you are infected with a strange virus which makes that you aspire for something which is inexpressible, undemonstrable. But here is the beauty of it because in this spiritual reality there is bliss, there is freedom, there is meaning. At least the person who experiences it feels it in that way. And that is what simply makes it worth it. Like many people say, Swami, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to be happy. And then they ask themselves, should I make a truckload of money? Should I make a truckload of babies? Should I get a career and a reputation? Should I get power over other people? What will give me this happiness? And as life shows it, neither power nor all the other things and many, many others quoted, they are not really producing a state of happiness, the, the real state of happiness. And the real state of happiness 
has been reported by people like Brahmana Maharishi and Mananda Mai and Saint Teresa of Avila and the likes of them, the Buddha himself, the state of happiness has been reported as coming exactly from this spirituality. You can say it can be like rationalists, ultra-skeptics, they can never be convinced that God exists, that the spirit exists, that there is a soul and an immortal spirit. They can never be convinced unless they would practice, of course, but that's exactly what they don't wish to do. They can never be convinced except through practice that it's worth it, that there is something into spirituality. But the thing which Krishna states, and it's not only Krishna, but Krishna is one of the trendsetters. Krishna is one of the cardinal teachers that shows uh, such fundamental truths, is that together with this subjective, bizarre thing which we call spirituality, there comes happiness. If you ask brain scientists, the brain scientists are claiming that happiness, states of intense satisfaction, they would be produced by some chemicals in the brain. Your brain produces dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, and others, endorphins, and other substances which produce a high, which produce a state of satisfaction, like a full body orgasm, like whatever you want to call it. And therefore, the point being, it is funny to notice that even if you take things in a skeptical, purely scientific, skeptical, materialistic, scientific way, it's like the yogis and spiritual people, they found an algorithm, they found a secret pathway of dealing with your brain in such a way that it produces all those chemicals and it gives you at least the sensation of happiness. I'm telling you again, as long as you stay within the confines of a materialistic science, even happiness is not happiness. Because, well, a few substances, you can take an injection with a few substances. What's the big deal? But the problem is that all of you are people who live in the life, in this body, and on this earth. All of you know that there are moments when life can be enchanting, and there are moments when life can be really shitty. And nobody wants to live in the moments when life is agonizing and painful. That's why Buddha ran away from home, because he saw the pain in the world, and he saw that the essence of existence is pain. Everybody goes through life having pain, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, different sorts of pain, and up till a point they are inevitable. And Buddha got appalled by the fact that people put up with this, and he said, somebody must find a solution to all this issue of pain, and as well with old age, illness, and death, but it's all just another form of pain, ultimately, in the view of the common person. That's why what I'm trying to say here is, it's very interesting that any way you look at it, it's like the yogis 
and the spiritual people quoted here by Krishna, they found a way. And many people say, isn't that fake? Isn't that like taking some morphine injection? Isn't that like smoking opium? Isn't that just an artificial thing? The fact is that you live every day. And I'm sure all of you have had moments of great physical pain, a toothache or some the aftermath of a surgery or something, or severe emotional pain or severe mental agony. And you constantly prayed, Oh my God, oh my God, let this be taken away for me. Let this stop, let this stop. If I would be at least okay, like to live in agony for six hours or for six days or for six months, it's not fun for anybody. And that is why really it doesn't matter if it is real. Like real in the meaning that, okay, the yogis discovered that if you breathe three times through the right nostril and then you stand on your head for five minutes and that you beat your buttocks against the floor 40 times and then you lie down, your brain produces morphine and you feel like in paradise. Yeah, but when you are having a toothache or something which doesn't stop, that would be a wonderful recipe to know, like what is the secret algorithm, the back door, which can create at least biologically, psychosomatically, physiologically, the sensation of well-being, a glowing sensation of energy, enthusiasm, and all the beautiful things which characterize this biological life on earth. Unfortunately, as long as we live in a physical body, we are very dependent on the chemistry and all the other things of this physical body. When, when we often say, oh, but I'm not only my body. You are not. But a severe headache or a severe toothache or a severe abdominal ache or I don't know what, can turn your days into a nightmare. Your highest, most lofty ideals will crumble in front of a pernicious, intense pain which nags you for one month non-stop. It turns you into a wreck. It turns you into a very miserable creature. And that is why, please realize that the body is not to be despised and separated from the rest. We live in a holistic reality in which a healthy mind in a healthy body, a healthy body with a healthy mind. And therefore, we don't care really if what the yogis have discovered is just a trick. The point is that from the standpoint of the human being, that trick feels good. It is good. It works. And thus, when Krishna sets very high ideals, he describes the effects of it because it's very easy to say, oh, spirituality is just a weird thing. I said two sessions ago that there are psychologists who suspect that men like Ramakrishna or women like Teresa of Avila or something, they were hysterics, schizophrenics. Now there is a new one. They had temporal lobe epilepsy and all sorts of other weird neurological theories in which spirituality, the, the cosmic love and other such feelings which those people experienced, they try to reduce them just to some simple chemistry 
and nerves and areas from the brain. But on the other hand, if you see things with their eyes, in the moment when you are agonizingly suffering because of jealousy or agonizingly suffering because of 20 other reasons, psychological, emotional, physical, you would like somebody to come and press the magic button and get you well in 20 minutes so that you can feel glowing, fantastic, shining, and all the rest. And that is why, remember that here you can bring many angles, but what is important is that Krishna sets some standards. Krishna removes confusion. He says in the strophe number 27, supreme bliss verily comes to this yogi whose mind is quite peaceful, whose passion is quieted, who has become Brahman and who is free from sin. Like people are always seeing or not seeing the light in the end of the tunnel. Oh, I do yoga. Why do I do yoga? Oh, I'm doing this spiritual practice and my teacher tells me to quiet my mind down. My teacher is telling me, give up your passion. Passion seems to be very lively, but it is actually a deadly trap which leads to pain. Calm, become one with Brahman. Look for Brahman. Be free from sin. The word sin in uh, most of the yoga texts from India is actually uh, a word which is, which is an equivalent of karma or bad karma. Like eliminate your bad karma. This means to be free from sin. To burn one sin is to burn the negative karma in most of the yoga texts. So... People say, what do I get if I do karma yoga and consecrate and I'm becoming, I'm destroying my negative karma? People say, what do I get if I look for this Brahman thing, this absolute thing, which seems to be such an abstract thing? What do I get if I quiet my passion? As I said last week in the end of the discourse, there are people, I have spoken often to people who consider passion the fuel of life. I, I spoke not to one, but to many people who rather than becoming passionless, they would rather die on the spot. There, I've spoken with so many people who if they had to give up their, their passion, they would prefer to give up yoga instantaneously. Like yoga... If I have to choose between living a life with passion and just being totally flat, stone-faced, no joy, no sorrow, there are people who love the drama. They love the drama so much that a life without drama would be like food without spices to it. It would be like completely unacceptable. And that's exactly why traditional Theravada Buddhism or Vedantic spirituality sounds so scary and so, so unacceptable to some people because they want this liveliness. But there is a deadly trap in this liveliness because this liveliness is accompanied by desire and passion 
And as long as you have desire and passion, there can be no nirvana and there can be no bliss. And such people, as I said, and I want to resume this idea, they come to a tantric school because they say, guys, you in a tantric school, you are allowed to laugh, to make silly jokes, to fall in love, to have sex, to experience 101 different emotions, to go up and down on the roller coaster of the mind and emotions, and your life seems to be lively and passionate. But that, you should realize that it is impossible. That would be cheating. Like, of course you can have it, but without being caught by it, like, first of all, so to speak, I want you to demonstrate to me that you can be free of it for one year. And then you can take it again and have lots of fun. But not by actually being the slave of the desires, the slave of the passion, not free from them, not strong enough to deal with them, not detached from them, and you think you can bypass that checkpoint and kind of go further on. What was different then between your life before yoga and your life after yoga? Before I was a person who was emotionally out of control, mentally out of control, energetically out of control, sometimes even physically out of control when it came to sex, food, God knows what. And then I came to tantric yoga in inverted commas, and the tantric yoga is allowing me to enjoy food, sex, emotions, energies, mind, and this and that. But basically, what did I get? Am I not actually lying to myself? Because further on, I'm a slave, and I don't have any mastery. Tantric yoga says it is okay to deal with emotions once you can turn them on and off like this. Once you are the master of them, and then it's okay to still have them. Like you don't need to go into a state of zero. No weeds in my garden. No samskaras. No vasanas. Nothing. I live like a Buddha statue, not laughing, not crying, just like that. Some people consider that like death, like an early death. And they say, I want to be buoyant. And Tantra apparently allows it. But please be very aware of this. It can be a trap. That is why sometimes we tell to people, when you do a tantric relationship, you should be detached and you should... And people try to bypass. They say, Swami, all this, I don't even know if it's right. And um, no, and so, Because people basically are slaves of their emotions, mind, energy and stuff. They don't want to stand up to the challenge and they pretty much want to continue their life as they did before coming to yoga, just that only this time they put a new label on it, and they label it tantric yoga. But there is no change of essence. There is no change of substance. 
That is why there are some rules of the game. Those rules of the game, they are like a checking, like they, they are like Occam's razor. They are like a checking grid. You pass or you don't pass. And if you don't pass, it means you are trying to lie to yourself and you did not sort the, out the problem. The challenge is still there and now you are hiding it under the title of Tantric Yoga. The problem is that the Tantric Yogis are also Yogis whose passion is quieted. Only that once they quieted it, they simply said, now I can handle them from a point, from a midpoint. I'm on the midpoint, on the middle path, and I can as well have some emotions, knowing precisely what the nature of them is. It is like the difference from Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who was practicing Vedantic ways, and he could not touch a coin, a simple rupee coin, without feeling a burning mark in his palm, like money is the devil's eye. And the difference between him and Swami Shivananda, who probably circulated millions and millions of rupees, building up leper colonies, hospitals, branches of the Divine Life Society, printing hundreds of titles of books, creating a university, doing this and that, which of course in the world in which we live they require capital, they require some investment of some sort. Swami Shivananda must have had in the palm of his hand or indirectly through his secretaries or karma yogis millions of rupees. He never screamed like a hysteric and ran in the forest like, oh my God, these rupees are such the devil's eye and so on. He used them. But Swami Shivananda, as history demonstrated is, was not a greedy person. He was not accumulating money for himself. He was completely free from the passion for money. But you can be free from the passion of money and live like a hermit in a cave and not want to see them and touch them because you are free, you don't crave them and you know what a poison they are to 99% of this world that the world is ruled by money, kept prisoner by money, manipulated by money, enslaved by money. So money is indeed a terrible energy and at the same time with the same money you can print the Bhagavad Gita and teach it to people. With the same money, you can build a yoga hall and teach exactly the teachings about money and about negative and positive energies in life. And therefore, one is the ascetic thing, like I've gone to no passion and I shall not go into any passion. And that's where my life is going. And then there is the point where I have become the master of passion and then I can play passion. Passion becomes like a game. Like, of course, as long as I am a human being, I can get irritated by something or I can get happy by something. But the question is, am I able to stop at the drop of a pin? Am I able to stop in a fraction of a second, a second and simply say, now this emotion stops and I shall not have it for the next 40 days once 
I refuse it, and I want that emotion, hop, I want this emotion to come instead. Then you are free from passion. Remember, because that's one of the traps when you come in tantric yoga, because apparently everything goes. But everything goes because before that, you must have made yourself the master of the passion. That's why there are so many rules of the game, just to check if you are not cheating in it. How would Vedantic people become jealous and attached into a relationship? Because they take sannyasa, diksha, and they renounce the world. They renounce everything. Like so many, like Bhishma did, you know, he said, I renounce the love of a woman. And the gods applauded. And he said, what a great man. This man, although young, although he said, I renounce forever the love of a woman. Only the Vedantic gods applauded. The Tantric gods said, what a naive fool. Because it's not necessarily that, but the idea is that the, the people need to control certain emotions and to be the masters of emotions, not controlled by them. And that is something which in Tantric Yoga you may overlook. Because, as I said, Vedantic people are having no risk to be attached, jealous, or something similar in a relationship. Why? Because they don't have any relationship. They renounce it at a certain point, and then they never have any relationship. So when you have no relationship, there's no way to get attached in a relationship. Tantrics are cultivating relationships and want to bring relationships to the level of Shiva and Parvati. But then there are some rules of the game, because otherwise you are going to lie to yourself that your relationship is fine and spiritual, and actually you are going to be just like five years ago, just like an ordinary Tom, Dick and Harry. And when the, the bitter moment will hit, will strike, then you are going to discover that all my Tantra was a pretense, because this is not such a special relationship after all. This is just a scandal, painful, drama relationship like every Tom, Dick and Harry always has. Then what's so special about it? Why is this supposed to become an enlightened relationship which leads to nirvana, both of us? It's not. Therefore, there is a price for this to be free from sin or negative karma, to focus on Brahman and identify with the Absolute Consciousness, to quiet your passion and to make your mind peaceful, to appease your mind. These are not easy things. But the prize is that Krishna said, supreme bliss verily comes to this yogi who has these conditions. Like, there is a candy. You get a candy for the hard work. And that candy is a big mouthful because it's called supreme bliss. When you are in pain physically, you wish you had some supreme bliss in your breast pocket to feed on. 
when you are energetically disturbed, you wish supreme bliss was available for you. When you are emotionally in hell, you wish that there was supreme bliss for you. When your mind is in agony and you lost your faith and you are depressed and you see no light in the end of the tunnel, then you wish there was supreme bliss somewhere at the press of a button. There is supreme bliss. And again, that supreme bliss can be a psychophysiological trick in which the yogis discovered the secret button to produce endorphins. It doesn't matter. It matters that when you are in hell, you would give anything to find that button and to relieve yourself because life in hellish conditions for five hours or for five days or for five months, it's not fun anyway. Therefore, Krishna here shows exactly why it's worth it. Even the most skeptical of the persons can declare yoga and spirituality a subjective nonsense. But it's a subjective nonsense which brings you supreme bliss. That's a pretty good gift. That's a, it, maybe yoga is just an imaginary game. You are playing dr Dungeons and Dragons in your mind. It's all just a dream. Hey, but it's a dream which produces supreme bliss. Lovely. Then life can be lived in another way when you have found the button to produce some supreme bliss from time to time. Then even if you get a cancer like Ramakrishna did, even the cancer didn't seem to be so significant to Ramakrishna, who said, it's only my body which suffers, my soul is immersed in this con cosmic consciousness and experiences bliss non-stop. That makes a difference. So, this is showing like Krishna is having this clear mind where he shows the real standards. Like, don't be confused. No? Like, you can say, uh, Eckhart Tolle reached to a state of spiritual realization by depression. And always when you look at some people who are like that, they seem to be continuously sad with a very dry sense of humor not very depressed, like where is the joy, where is the enthusiasm, where is this and that. But there is something at the foot of that rainbow. There is a treasure at the foot of that rainbow. And that treasure is called by Krishna, supreme bliss. That is why this puts the spiritual practice into a different perspective. Spiritual people are not that disinterested after all. Everybody wants something. Only that some people want immediate satisfaction and some people will say, you know what, I can wait for 12 years and get supreme bliss. If I postpone and postpone and I'm not greedy for the small things, I'm building up for the supreme bliss. But even the spiritual people are given promises. Do this and there is supreme... He insists, he says, supreme bliss verily comes like I know it's hard to believe like even Jesus says verily 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 I tell you like people are incredulous they say really Jesus if we forgive our enemy it's going to be good it sounds like very stupid and Jesus says truly 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 I tell you so does Krishna he says I know that from your level of illusion you can't see it but Truly, verily, supreme bliss is coming. 
Like it's a guarantee which comes from beyond. It's a guarantee who comes from somebody who has crossed to the other shore and knows what's coming, knows what is at the foot of the rainbow. And he continues in the strophe number 28. The yogi always engaging the mind thus, as described before, without passion, with peace and so on. Always engaging the mind thus in the practice of yoga. Freed from sins. Again, you have to deal with the negative karma and with the negative samskaras in the mind. Like harmonized in yama and niyama and without negative karma. Easily, easily enjoys the infinite bliss, again, a very big word, of contact with Brahman, the eternal. Or in the translation of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the yogi freed from blemish with ease attains contact with Brahman, which is infinite joy. This is where the infinite joy is. This is where the infinite bliss is. It is from the contact with the absolute. Only the contact with the absolute consciousness can give the infinite joy, the infinite bliss. As much as people go through the world, anything they get from a sexual orgasm to a heroin shot and from a good food to a wonderful trip, nothing compares to the infinite bliss. Nothing is not even a little crumb compared to the infinite bliss. People constantly are looking for titillation and satisfaction. But it is very difficult to see for most people where is the real accomplishment. People say, I'm looking for happiness. But when you look around, people are not willing to give up a little pleasure of today to wait until tomorrow. People don't even have the faith. They say, how do I know that I'm not going to give away this pleasure of today and you are promising me some bliss next year? It is like the kingdom of heaven. Be, restrict yourself here on earth and when you die you shall go to the kingdom of heaven and have paradise. Many people say, the heck with it, I'm not willing to take this bet. I'm not willing to take this risk. It's too much for me. I, and what if there is no kingdom of heaven and there is no afterlife bliss? Then I screwed my life living in asceticism and deprivation, hoping in some blissful afterlife, and then I'm going to discover I have been the moron of all morons. I have been the most stupid loser because there is nothing. I ran for an for a illusion. This is the lack of faith. People like most of the spiritualists of this world, somehow they had this thing in their heart that they felt that they could trust. They could take the risk. They could gamble. It's like a huge gamble with your life and only something in your heart, a sort of inexpressible, crazy thing, which we call aspiration, that intuition, which is given by aspiration, tells you, no, go, 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 it's right. It's right. You are not going to lose anything. It's right. Trust in the process. Trust in it. Trust in God. Trust in the divine promises that exist in the spiritual literature. Therefore, here Krishna is giving 
faith as much as he can because he says the yogi doing, engaging the mind thus in the practice of yoga and removing the negative karma because the negative karma would give some hindrances. And you know, there are some of you who still experience negative karma here and there and it's not pleasant. And I always suggest to you, do karma yoga. Any one of you that has physical problems, energy problems, emotional problems, mental problems, do karma yoga. Karma yoga is the accelerated way of paying karma. Otherwise, you pay karma with a little drop every day and through your practice, through the special practices that you may do. And those of you who are knowledgeable and initiated enough and also persevering enough because you can be initiated and very lazy and not do anything about it. And those who do techniques for burning karma, such as Chanchari Mudra, Yoni Mudra and things like those. But otherwise, besides such high initiation levels which require a high level of perseverance, the only, the fastest way of dealing with karma is by creating the opposite, karma abundantly. And karma yoga does precisely that. That is why karma yoga is a big way of getting out of trouble. And we recommend it always. And we notice with surprise, there are fewer and fewer people in the school practicing karma yoga. It's like, you are not practicing karma yoga for me. You are practicing karma yoga for yourself. Because karma yoga is not something which Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati invented. So he gets people on the third Sunday every month to come and clean the lawn in the Soma campus. It's not exploitation, although to some people it may. When you are cynical, it may seem like, ah, why should I put my bones to work for some selfless cause like this? It's very idealistic and I'm no longer idealistic. But karma yoga is invented thousands of years ago. And it is a method Krishna mentioned both in the previous and in this one and in other strophes that the yogi engaging his mind thus in the practice of yoga, coma, freed from sins, coma, like it's a condition. You can engage your mind thus in the practice of yoga and you are not freed from your negative karma, you still are going to have a bumpy road from time to time. It's still not finished because you still have debts. It's still not finished because you still have something to fulfill. And thus, when those are completed, then the yogi not only enjoys the infinite bliss of contact with Brahman, the yogi easily enjoys the infinite bliss of contact with the Absolute Consciousness. You may choose to think that Krishna is pulling your leg, that Krishna is just selling dreams. But otherwise, Krishna is giving you faith because Krishna says you are looking for bliss, you are looking for happiness, that's where it is. You have to reach contact with the infinite consciousness, with the absolute consciousness of the universe. Without Brahman, without the Shiva consciousness as called in Tantra, there is no infinite bliss. There are only limited, transient pleasures of the senses and mind. 
that you can have. But that's a roller coaster of life. That's samsara. That's just the wheel of birth and death where you constantly are trying to hunt, hunt, hunt some of the cheap things of life. Cheap in the big picture because they are a craving for immediate satisfaction. And uh, strophe number 29, which continues, because you see constantly Krishna here doesn't give teachings. He says how great it is to be an accomplished yogi. What does a real yogi get? He's basically waving a carrot in front of the nose of Arjuna. He's trying to motivate Arjuna and the whole universe. Focus on spirituality. There is something in spirituality. Maybe you didn't notice But, hey, spirituality is not only a subjective, dubious thing. There is there bliss, happiness, and others. And the strophe number 29 is one of the often quoted. If there are 20 quotes, 20 famous quotes from the Bhagavad Gita, this one will be one of them. It is one of the most quoted verses from the Bhagavad Gita because it describes... Oneness. It describes a unitary vision on the universe and on life. Like where do you have to tend to go? What is the goal? What is the star to which you have attached your chariot? What are you aiming towards? Says Krishna, with the mind harmonized by yoga, he sees the self, the supreme self, the higher self, Atman, abiding in all beings and all beings in the self. He sees the same everywhere. In the moment when a yogi sees the divine consciousness, the divine consciousness becomes unmistakable. It's everywhere. You cannot stay away from it. He puts it as the self which is a beautiful way of putting it, because we have always this game of words with the higher self and the lower self. And with the mind harmonized by yoga, which means having this vision, this spiritual vision, he sees the self abiding in all beings. Like there is a supreme self, even in the demons from hell. Everybody, starting with the most wretched and finishing with the most accomplished, They have a self. If they would not be inhabited by a self, they would not be able to exist. Because the self is the root of existence. It is what connects us to the ocean of consciousness. And therefore, even when dealing with a demon, even when dealing with whatever entity, animal, subtle being, the yogi sees the self in all the beings. He can't make himself forget. He would always say, but this is also the Supreme Self. In the language of Kashmiri Shaivism, he sees Shiva in all beings. He says, Shiva exists in every living being, even in things which are inanimate. If there is a consciousness of the atom, then every atom is Shiva. Then even the pillars in this hall are Shiva. There is nothing which is not Shiva because every atom is ultimately a form of life 
although we can qualify it as inorganic matter. But there is no inorganic into a vision of oneness. Trees and animals and spirits and atoms, they all reflect, reflect the glory of the Creator, the glory of the cosmic consciousness. So, with the mind harmonized by yoga, he sees the self abiding in all beings and all beings in the self. Paul, the apostle of Christ, in one of the letters, he says, either we know it or not, still all of us belong to the Lord. Like, there is no way to get outside of God. Even if you are an atheist, even if you are a blasphemer, even if you are an ignorant, even if you are a demon from hell, you can't get away from God. There is nothing which is outside of God. Guru Nanak, the first of the ten gurus that founded Sikhism, this syncretic religion in northwestern India, was taken on a pilgrimage to Mecca by some Muslim people who hoped to convert him, to convince him to be a Muslim eventually. And when he sat down tired after walking, in those days people were walking, so it had been thousands of miles of pilgrimage, he sat down and he sat down and his feet were pointing towards the Mecca. And like in India, apparently in that area they don't like it. And they said, you should not point your feet towards the Mecca. Why, he said. Because it's holy. But so what? He said, well, it's the dwelling of God. It's the place where God is dwelling. And then Guru Nanak gave a flabbergasting reply. He thought a little bit of it. And he said, then please you take my feet and turn them in any direction you find fit where there is no God. Like, it's not possible. Wherever you point your feet, you point your feet towards God. Because God is omnipresent. That's the very definition of the cosmic consciousness. And therefore, he sees all beings in the self. Every being is floating in the ocean of cosmic consciousness. Every being is a branch on the tree of life. We cannot exist separate from the ocean. We cannot exist. There is, it's ontologically, there is no possible existence separate. You didn't give birth to yourselves. You have been born by this universe, by Mother Nature. Therefore, it's impossible. You did not give birth to yourself by an autonomous power which says, I am by myself. People have this naive thing of thinking that they can turn against God, that they can ignore the cosmic consciousness, that they can do something. Like you see so many lousy Hollywood movies about angels fighting bad angels and human beings making choices. And, and it's like anybody has a choice. There is no choice in the matter if you belong to God or not. You can be just a reluctant part of the team. That's all you can be. You can make a fool of yourself showing how ignorant and how blinded you are by the illusion, thinking that whatever you do can separate you even a micron from the cosmic consciousness. 
Nothing which you do can, even if you go to hell, you are still with God. Therefore, it's only that you don't experience pleasure. You don't experience bliss. But Paul was right. He said, either we know it or not, we still, all of us, belong to the Lord. There's no way to be somewhere. Even the great tantric texts like Vigyana Bhairava Tantra and others, they say the same thing. They say, try to think a thought which is not Shiva. Because people say, I went into meditation and my mind was completely restless. But Vigyana Bhairava says, you are not looking properly. Even the most stupid distraction of the mind, it's still God. Because there is nothing which is not God. Either this universe is 100% the expression of the divine consciousness, or if not, God is not God. Because it means there is something else which can challenge the oneness of the divine. That's not true, simply. The oneness is always there. Here Krishna comes beautifully to an expression of oneness. He says, with a mind harmonized by yoga, he sees the self abiding in all beings. All beings have to be treated with a divine decency because the self is in all. And if somebody is in a demonic phase of their existence, of course, they deserve to be treated like the demons. It is a foolish thing to invite a cow to come and sleep in your apartment because it will make a mess of your apartment. The cows have to stay in a stable, not in your bedroom. So the demons have to be treated like demons, but without ever forgetting that even the cows and the demons and human beings, they have the divine nature. They are an expression of the divine nature in a very confused way, in a very tormented way, but still they would not exist if there would not be a palpitating Atman at the core of their being, if Spanda, the divine energy, would not enliven them. And all the beings in the self, there's nobody that swims in the ocean of someone else than God. This universe is the pond of God. It is the pool of Shiva. Everybody, either they like it or not, know it or not, they swim in the pond of Shiva. Everybody is immersed in the Shiva consciousness. This is a Unitarian view. And he says, he sees the same everywhere. Please understand, when you have an open mind, somebody said, you should take care that your brains don't fall off your skull. Like people trying to be open, sometimes they become ridiculous, stupid, completely pathetic. Yes, you see everything as the same, but if you put your finger on the table and take a big hammer and hit it with all your strength and squash your bones, it's going to hurt like hell and you might remain invalidated, incapacitated for life. It's all the same. Cosmic bliss, supreme bliss, infinite bliss, and a squashed finger is all the same. What would you choose? Squashed fingers or bliss? 
unless you are a total masochist, 99.99% of the population would choose bliss. And therefore, what I'm saying here is don't lose your common sense. This statement is beautiful, but monism, this non-duality, can make people lose some of their common sense, some of their touch with the ground. It's all the same. The self is abiding in all the beings, the supreme self. All the beings are abiding in God. The same is everywhere. It's just the tree of life. It's the tree of God everywhere. And everything is blossoming on that tree of life. But it doesn't mean that you have to act like a brain dead person and invite the cow to sleep in your bedroom. The cow belongs in the stable. Thus, this means that although the great spirits can see the oneness, at the same time they can see the different conditions. Remember as Krishna was putting it beautifully in a previous chapter where he said the gunas are acting upon the gunas. Some people fall and break their leg. Some people win the national lottery. Some people fall in love. Some people cannot fall in love. The gunas act upon the gunas. The self, the supreme self, is not involved into this. The supreme self is a witness to all of this. But the gunas keep acting upon the gunas. Therefore, the fact that you see the self doesn't mean that the gunas will stop acting upon the gunas. Because the prakriti, the nature, is made of gunas. And nobody has ever stopped the nature. The wheel of samsara keeps spinning. It subjectively can stop for you as you go in nirvana. But for the rest of the universe, they still have to fulfill their evolution. And because of this, therefore remember that although you have a, an even vision, nevertheless this does not mean that the conditions are not different. Realize there have been inequalities always. Some people are born weaker. Some people are born stronger. Some people are born more intelligent. Some people are born less intelligent. Some people are born more sexual. Some people are born less sexual. Some people are born more sickly. Some people are born more healthy. Some people are born with aspiration. Some people are born with much less aspiration. There will always be equal conditions and the world is the way it is precisely because of this. Look at the nature. If suddenly the gazelles would become untouchable in the meaning of unhuntable, then you'd condemn all the tigers and the lions and the panthers and the cheetah to death. The gazelles are pretty, but they have to be huntable for the sake of the ecological chain, of the food chain. And thus, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes nature is cruel. Try to imagine a little country, just a small, one of the small countries of Europe, one of those little principalities counting 100 square kilometers or something, and in that country, everybody has in their bank account at least 1 million euros. Everybody. Everybody is given by an effort. All the population of that country is made rich. Then tomorrow, 
school clean the toilets? Because even the toilet cleaners from yesterday, they will say, I'm not going to touch it anymore. I've got a million in the bank. I'm not cleaning toilets anymore. I did it because that's the only thing which I knew how to do. What would happen in one week? Who would pick up the garbage? The society, the way it exists, it's like the nature. It's a cruel ecosystem in which some people are wealthy and some people are slaves and poor, in which the lion hunts down the gazelle, and if it's not that way, it cannot work. People may ask, couldn't we have a different other world? Maybe. Maybe. But the creator of this world has created, this world is a world on Svadhisthana. This planet is not a very high paradise. And in this world, there is still devoration of life by life. There is this survival of the fittest and other such principles which are common knowledge. And therefore, to try to live in a utopian world when the world is the way it is, it simply shows lack of common sense. Spirituality must not produce lack of common sense. I want to see everybody as the self. I am aware of the fact that everybody is bathing in the ocean of the Shiva consciousness. But the gunas act upon the gunas. Not everybody is the same. Not everybody is at the same stage. That's why what you can give to people according to Buddha is compassion, loving kindness. You cannot stop hell from existing. Because if hell could have been stopped from existing, Buddha would have stopped it. Jesus would have stopped it. Saint Francis of Assisi or Rumi would have stopped it. Some Or Shambhala, they would have joined hands and they would have said, for God's sake, let's stop hell because hell is a putrid cesspool from where stenches impurifying the world, you know. Always, as long as you have hell, you have pain, you have torment, you have demons coming out of hell to do more mayhem. Let's stop hell. But they never did. Because hell is an organic part of the cycle of life. You have compost. When you have dying organisms, you have compost. And compost, in the beginning, it's a putrid, bad-smelling substance before it becomes fertilizer again. You cannot eliminate it from the cycle of nature. That's why it's not that Krishna says an, a monistic yogi, a non-dualistic yogi, will be friends with everybody and will invite the cow in his bedroom to sleep in his bed and will treat everybody just the same. No, you cannot. Jesus was not treating everybody just the same, although he was one of the greatest divine presences in the history of this planet. And yet, he had people that he blamed bitterly, and he had people that he encouraged beyond measure and graced beyond measure. Therefore, do not interpret... This is a very famous statement in the Bhagavad Gita, but it has to be understood the proper way. And he continues with a beautiful one, Suddenly he goes from the self to the theistic aspect. Krishna from time to time, more so towards the end of this text, 
in the later chapters and from time to time in the beginning chapters because there it's more urgent for him to wake up Arjuna to a spiritual reality. Krishna from time to time reminds to Arjuna and to the reader that he who speaks now, Krishna, is actually an avatara, an incarnation of God. It is a form of the divine consciousness born in a human body and apparently looking like any other Tom, Dick and Harry, but actually representing the cosmic consciousness on a functional visit to planet Earth to produce a major change in history, to attend and supervise a major change in the human history and spirituality. And that's where Krishna sounds very much like Jesus. He is of a self-confidence which either reflects pure madness or indeed a divine spirit. Says Krishna, because he said you should see the self everywhere and every, everything in the self. And now he turns it by saying the same thing but in a theistic way. He says, he who sees me, me means God. The higher self. There are people who dislike this thing of God because they are a little bit anarchistic and they don't like to think that there is a very, very powerful being, a supreme being to which you belong and so on. And they kick their feet. And as long as you speak about the supreme self or the Buddha nature or some separate Buddhas of the past, present and future, you can deal. Oh yeah, I'm a dude. Those are some dudes. I am here, then there is a supreme self which is an abstraction and I can live with that. But the theistic spirituality, especially people that have a strong ego and pride, it irritates them very much because it's like suddenly you have to be obedient, suddenly you have to surrender, and that I don't like. I prefer to think in terms of Vedanta and other spiritualities. It is not a coincidence that in the end of Kali Yuga where we are, where so many demonically selfish people live, people are so allergic to theistic religion and they would prefer Vedanticism, Buddhism, something where you are given this illusion that you are like a Promethean titan. You have to do yourself. You have to sort it out for yourself. Where is the grace? Where is the factor that either we know it or not, we still, all of us, belong to the Lord? Because that changes completely the vision of things. Some people hate that angle because it reminds to them that their independence is just a painful dream of their ego. 